Hello and welcome again to Fast Talk, your source for the science of cycling performance. I'm your host, Chris Case. I'm going to set the stage for today's episode with an analogy. And apologies to those of you who don't enjoy our car engine analogies, but we're sticking with it on today's episode. We ask a simple question. Which has the greatest chance of consistently producing the best performances? A powerful, finely tuned race-inspired engine? Take your pick from Ferrari, Porsche, BMW, and especially if you're an F1 fan, Mercedes. Or would you prefer to have a heavily modified Honda Civic that you hope can compete at that goal race you've been preparing for? Bringing it back to cycling terms, is it more beneficial to build a robust, complete physiological engine and then apply it to or activate it for different race situations? Or is it better to work on specific attributes of your engine given the specific demands of a particular race? The answer, it turns out, has as much to do with training philosophy as it does to physiological principles. In today's episode, we analyze which is more appropriate for you and which leads to the best performances and the best athletes. It'll likely become pretty clear where Coach Connor and our main guest, Jim Miller, stand on the matter. Jim, as Chief of Sports Performance, leads USA Cycling's athlete development programs. In his previous role with USA Cycling, after a two-year hiatus took him to training peaks, Miller helped the United States earn 14 Olympic medals and numerous world championship titles since 2001. The list of athletes Jim has coached over the years is too long to read, but notably includes TJ Van Garderen, Kate Courtney, Kristen Armstrong, and Lawson Craddock, to name a few. His coaching experience isn't solely focused on the elite of the elite, however. Jim also works with athletes whose backgrounds or goals are unique, and they're often from the amateur or master's ranks. Not surprisingly, Jim has found the most success with the amateurs he coaches by applying the same principles he does to world champions. We'll hear about those successes today. We'll also take a compelling tangent into the importance of psychology and mental capacity to success. On today's episode, we'll also hear from American pro Kiel Reinen, data analyst and coach Tim Cusick, and world tour physiologist Inigo San Milan. All that and much more today on Fast Talk. Let's make you fast. This episode of Fast Talk is brought to you by Whoop. Now, Trevor, I know you've convinced some athletes that you still coach that Whoop is a valuable tool. So maybe give us a a little overview of how you use Whoop for the art of coaching. It's just like using the, the other metrics. I want to see how hard they're training. I want to see the work they're doing. But... I have learned with my athletes that's an incomplete picture. And I have sub-athletes that have real good stamina and can push through things until they cook themselves. I have other athletes that can't handle it very well. Getting that WHOOP data from them every week is remarkably valuable. You know, I ask them to, to send me the summary of the week and I want to see on WHOOP, there, there's this weak view where it shows you your strain every day that shows you your recovery level every day. And I have seen, like I said, every athlete is different. Some athletes can tolerate it better than others. 
and you get to know them. But I certainly have some athletes where if that strain is always higher than the recovery, they're getting in trouble. We need to start heading, we need to find a period of time to recover. Uh, for a lot of my athletes, I want points in the week where recovery is higher than the, the strain and vice versa. But it, it is actually a very valuable metric that I can't see anywhere else. And it gives me a complete picture of the week that I can't get just from the training software. Welcome everybody to another episode of Fast Talk. We're really excited about today's episode. We've got a great guest. We've got a great topic. We're going to have a fun discussion. Welcome to the program, Jim Miller. Thank you guys. Thanks for having me. And, you know, before the program began, we talked a little bit about how we were going to introduce Jim, how many of the American cyclists he's coached over the years. That The list is too long to, to read through it. We decided the list of people he hasn't worked with would be the, the way to go, but we're not going to read that list either. Jim, in your own words, tell us about this vast experience you have working with American cyclists. Oddly enough, I started started coaching cycling or riding training for cycling a long time ago, like 1993. So I think consequently, if you span that many years, then you've, you're going to work with a lot of people, a lot of athletes, and and also, you know, have a lot of successes, have a lot of failures in the process. Tell me a little bit about that arc from 1993 to now. You, you start as a, a junior coach, uh, just working with individuals, and then you work your way up now to the, what is it, chief of sports performance at USA Cycling? That's right. So, yeah, when I, you know, I studied exercise physiology in the 90s. I was really fortunate to have a college advisor, by the, a guy by the name of Dave Martin, worked at AIS for 20 years, moved on to the 76ers, now now is in private industry, but he's a icon amongst physiologists, exercise physiologists. Now that I look back on it, it was it was amazing to have him as a an advisor as a, as a 20 year old guy. Um, everything I learned in phys- physiology in the 90s, we'll call it maybe the late 80s, <laughs> was geared towards either cross country skiing or cycling. So it, it was like this really amazing chance to learn from a super smart guy. Uh, specifically in in sports that I love and, and participate in, so yeah, I coached. I ended up while I was going to school had had a couple riders ask me if I would coach them because they just followed me on training. Eventually, one of them asked me how I come up with what we do every day, and I said, "Well, for the most part, I'm making it up and seeing how it works." But uh, I do have a plan and a methodology I'm trying to imply here. So I started coaching riders in the '90s, uh, early 2000s was offered a job as a women's national team coach at USA Cycling. Um, at that time, I think the only way to really distinguish yourself or set yourself apart from other trainers or coaches was to have this national team experience. So I, so I jumped at it, assuming like all good national federations that coaches are fired about every three years. And I would do this for three years and <laughs> find my way into something else uh, or another level of coaching. And and uh, it didn't quite work that way for me. I sort of uh, began to take on more responsibilities, take on more roles at USA Cycling, become responsible for more programs, uh, more disciplines, all the way up into 2017, 18, where I was overseeing all the programs, took a brief hiatus to go work at Training Peaks, uh, and then came back this year as 
uh, basically the same role, but a little bit different uh, setup and, and structure and title. Well, it's, I mean, it's amazing to, to hear that trajectory, and that's the experience we want to tap into today. We've got a great conversation in store for everybody. Do you train the engine? Do you make that engine as best you can, build it to be as efficient and powerful and, and sophisticated as possible, or do you train for a specific event? That's the debate we're going to have. And Trevor, I know you want to set the stage with some of the scientific debate, some of the research that's ongoing in this dichotomy here. Let's start there. Right. So this is that whole question of should you be training very specifically for the sort of event that you're doing? So if you're a mountain biker, should your training be fundamentally different from a crit rider, which should be fundamentally different from a, a stage racer? Or is it more the idea of we all have an engine, build the engine, and then let the let your body figure out the, the particulars of the racing. Build the best engine you can build and let it apply it to different races and right. hey, best engine wins. And, and not to, to give the well, give a spoiler alert, you, you've already heard my bias on the show, <laughs> which is I would rather have a Ferrari than a Volvo that's been tuned up for a particular event. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's that's the way I look at it. And so we'll go into some of the science about this. It's actually really complex. It, it's a really interesting question. Uh, even as I was going through all the research, there was a lot of contradictory information. So I, between having Jim here and, and the fact that I love these ones where the answer is this complex, I think this is going to be a lot of fun. But let's just introduce a little bit of the science behind the, the concept. There is a big scientific debate over this doing very event-specific training, or should you just focus on, on building that engine? So some of the names behind this, we've talked about Dr. Izaron on the show. We talked about him in terms of block periodization, mm -hmm. and he's one of the proponents of build the engine. On the other side, and we've never mentioned this name before, is a, a Dr. Bush who's really pushed this idea of specificity. Mm -hmm. So let me just give the science side of this and going to throw some terms out that we probably won't continue to use. But when you're talking about that specificity side, you can also call it coordinative overload. Dr. Bush's concept is there is no such a thing as generalized strength, that it all has to be within the context of a particular movement or a particular action. So you can build a strength, but... If it's not in that context, it really doesn't matter. And so great to explain what I'm talking about, uh, a study that I absolutely love is one where they took people, they put them on a leg press machine. It was a specially designed leg press machine that they could rotate. Mm. Um, so they could have you in an upright position or they could have you in a supine position. Otherwise, everything was identical. Exact same machine, exact same movement. You were just in a slightly different position. They had people train on this machine, and then they measured their strength gains. So they measured the strength gain in the same position. So some of the group trained in, this, in the upright position, some trained in the supine position, uh, measured their strength gains. Then they rotated them into the other position to see if they maintained those strength gains. And what they saw was they only maintained about 25%. Wow. So it was almost like the strength gains disappeared 
just by rotating the machine. Mm -hmm. So that would be Bush's argument that you have to be specific, otherwise you're going to train something that you can't use. Mm -hmm. What Dr. Izaron argued for, you've heard me talk on the show about energy systems. He actually referred to it as capacities. So his argument is, no, you need to develop these capacities. You need to hit them very specific, specifically. This is based on very much a, a Newtonian or traditional exercise physiology principles. So this is actually called general overload. Mm -hmm. And his argument is you need to produce an overload. And we've talked about this as the fundamental principle of training. You need to create a stress that your body can't handle, which is the overload, and then let your body adapt to it. And so his argument is it, your, your body adapts capacities or energy systems so you need to target those. And then you can use those capacities for the actual specific movement. So it's build the engine, then let the engine figure out how to do the particular work. Right. It's interesting because in there you're using the terms general and specific and you're using it in both settings. And that's why this some of this can get confusing. It can sound a, a, a bit contradictory, but that's why we're going to take our time and walk through this nice oh, and slowly. We haven't even started because here, here's going to be the first contradiction or confusion. Some of you might listen to that and go, but if you are targeting a particular capacity or energy system, isn't that being specific? Right. Good question. Which is spot on. And so the argument here is there's external and internal specificity. So this idea of train your event. So the, the, the Bush model, the, that, that specificity model is actually talking about external specificity. Your movement matches the event. So that's external. Where the general overload, the more Iseron promoted model, um, is internal specificity. Mm -hmm. You are targeting specifically internal systems. Right. So there's your first bit of confusion is actually you can argue both are specific. <laughs> yes. It's just a different type of specificity. And just to, again, spoiler alert, as we talk, get further down the road here, you're going to discover that internal specificity in some ways isn't very specific at all. Yep. And so a study that I love to give you to, to explain that is the good old bicep study where they had people train just their right arm. And at the end of the intervention, they discover that, lo and behold, their left arm gets stronger too, even though they never trained their left arm. That's crazy. So that's the argument that maybe we're not as specific as we thought. Kiel Reinen is an experienced World Tour rider with Trek Segafredo, who has an exercise physiology degree from the University of Colorado. I did an interview with him a few years ago where he brought up the engine versus specificity question in order to answer a completely different question. His thought, however, was very insightful. Well, most of your readers aren't scientists. Just using logic is usually where I start. There's a handful of things that come to mind first. What are, what are we doing in training, really? We're trying to get ready to race. And not just do races, but, you know, hopefully do well at those races. Right. So there's a certain amount of specificity that comes in training where initially, if you think about it just quickly, the goal of training is to simulate racing. So if you're going to have, if you're going to race San Remo, you should go out and train for seven hours. If you're going to do local crits, maybe an hour of high intensity is what you're looking for. But 
that's not, if you sit and think about it a little bit more, that's not necessarily the entire picture. What, what your, if your goal is to get better at the events you're doing, simulating them to a, a T isn't necessarily going to get you the gains that you want to see. Um, for example, never in a race do I do eight minutes of threshold followed by a 30-second sprint followed by 10 minutes of 40-20s. You know, that's like, that's way too exact. doesn't happen exactly in racing, but it turns out that those things, those intervals in that order cause a certain type of adaption. And that's what we're looking for is adaption and adaption that will, that will get you better at racing. Jim, did you have anything you want to add to this? No, that's pretty good. Uh, now I'm confused. <laughs> good. <laughs> Hopefully by the end of this, we can unconfuse our listeners and ourselves, but I'll admit to you, preparing for this, I kind of threw my hands in the air and went, wow, this is a, a confusing subject. It is. Also something that uh, I, I think is debated quite a bit, actually, when you really start to think about it and you think about the discussions you've had with other coaches and the philosophies they or methodologies they apply, then, then you realize you actually have this discussion quite a bit. Yes. So it's a good one to unpack, I think. I think it's a really important one because it. when I, I was reading, I actually read a great review, and we'll put all the references as usual up on the website, but I read a great review comparing Bush to, to Isaron, and it brought up, it was all founded on this whole overload principle. And we have said time and time again, that is the fundamental principle of training. You have to produce a stress, an overload that your body can't normally handle and then your body adapts to it. So this is really getting at what is the best way to overload the body. And eventually we're going to get to giving out some advice about what that looks like. Where do we go from here, Trevor? Well, so there's just two other points I want to bring up in this, this scientific debate before we get into the, the more practical. One is, again, going to the overload. You can't overload a race. Your body doesn't have a, here's my crit system. So if you overload that, that's, that's being specific. So that, again, if you're training for a crit and you're doing specific crit training, that is external specificity, but it's not internal specificity. So the argument that's been made against that approach is you have to hit multiple capacities or multiple energy systems. And to produce enough stress to overload each of those, you run the risk of overtraining. And that has always been Israel's argument. And that's why he moved to the block training. If you look at block training, it's you do these short cycles where you just hit one or two systems at a time and really try to overload it. So that's an important thing to remember. And the way people who talk more about the specificity, the way they address that is with variance. So that's the good old, you have a runner that runs with weights on their legs to produce that extra overload, things like that, or sprinting in the sand to make it a little bit tougher on you. The other important thing to remember is most of this debate has been more in skill-oriented sports. So talking about sprinting or talking about a lot of your track and field type events. Cycling relative to a lot of other sports, is a low-skill sport. And more importantly, you're doing most of your training on the bike, so you're actually doing the pedal movement. So to a degree, any training on the bike 
necessarily has that specificity to it. I guess I'd ask that question of Jim. In your experience, would you say that things are changing in that regard, that more of the athletes you're working with are doing more stuff off of the bike these days than they once did? I'd most definitely say yes. Specifically, I think more more strength training. I think in the past has been not necessarily or prescribed often. And, and the general idea being that if you lift weights, you get you build muscle mass, which is heavy, and and then you have a power to weight issue going the wrong way. But then the other way to look at it, for me, anyways, is uh, more muscle equals more power. Um, so if you generate, you build a little bit of mass but you can produce more power than, than you're going in the right direction. Jim, what we're really excited to ask you about, and I think this will be the bulk of the rest of our conversation, is what have you seen from experience? Do athletes do better when they do training that is highly specific towards their event? Or do you find it's more the generalized, let's build that engine uh, as optimally as possible and then let their, their bodies figure out the event? What's been your experience? I really liked your analogy earlier. Would you rather have a Ferrari or a Volkswagen? And I think in all scenarios, you'd rather have a Ferrari. When I think about this, it's interesting. I I go back to this, uh, you know, if I look, if I think about the late nineties, we were all doing these, this periodization energy, one energy system at a time, three weeks at a time with a week off. It was like, you know, classic Bompa periodization year after year. I kept realizing that in, June, everybody would crack and fall apart. We'd got to the point where we'd end up riding in a week or two weeks of rest in June so that they could finish out the season. As I really started to think about that, I'm like, this is a little bit crazy because it's, it's so much intensity that that you're just you're too tired from training to, to race effectively. I think, you know, I took that idea and I, I think around 2004, 2005, AIS produced a, published a paper on women's World Cup racing, road racing. And they basically said the entire road race is 230 watts, uh, followed by five to seven minute VO2 effort that caused separation. Uh, maybe before that five to five to seven minute VO2, uh, there would be a handful of peak accelerations. And to me, then that really started opening my eyes. Like you have to think about what the event is you're doing and what the event demands are, and then train towards building that engine for those event demands. I, li- I prefer to train a really big engine first. Um, I think if you have a really big engine, then you can fine tune it and you can, you can build in the specificity uh, for a particular event. But without the engine, you're just not even in the game, in my opinion. It's a great way to look at it. And as you know, I, I share a similar viewpoint. And for some reason, so I'm, I'm looking at this study right now that... Uh, uh, I wanted to bring up that, that kind of parallels some of what you were saying. This is a, a 1996 study in the International Journal of Sports Medicine where they studied runners, and they had runners who did different length distances from 10K down to about 800 meters. And some of the surprising findings of this study were that the runners who spent their time training at race pace performed worse than the runners who tended to just have a a more generalized training approach. And what they found was the best runners in in all lengths 
were the ones who tended to do a lot of more moderate uh, long distance training with some some high intensity running. So again, you know, this is a study from 1996. You know, I find it really, I found it a really fascinating study of, of specificity. I'm interested. Is this what you found when you said you were you changed the approach with the the athletes when you were seeing them all pushing over training? Is this consistent with what you were doing? Yeah, I think it's super consistent. I end up calling this training like like endurance plus. So if you're a, a world tour guy, you have to spend out you spend five hours at 300, 320 watts, and they just they just ride, and and then the races are decided five six hours into this. Uh, and it's really quick. It happens really quick, right? It's, it's a uh, five, six minutes, 10 minutes on a climb and they're, and then they're done and they're back at threshold. Uh, but if you can't metabolically be efficient enough to get to that five hour mark, you don't even get a chance to race on that climb. Yeah. I, I want to jump in here for just a second to, to hopefully clarify or confirm what I think a lot of listeners might have in their mind. And uh, Trevor, we talk about these zone high zone two rides right below aerobic threshold. Is is that what Jim is essentially describing here? And and we espouse those as really beneficial. You don't want to do those every single ride, but they do. Like he said, they say sort of um, they don't fatigue you, but they give you a lot of load. Important to point out. So you're talking about pros doing five hour rides at 300 watts for a pro. That is a zone two ride. Yeah, right, mm-hmm. right. Yes, as, as frightening as that sounds, which is why most of us will never beat a pro because we're all sitting there at threshold while the pro is sitting there reading the newspaper. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. To his point is they can sit there at that level because of the, the massive quantity they've done at that level. And they're not super fatigued when it gets to the decisive moment, that five to 10 minutes where they have to get over that climb. Right. And so this was a study I was going to bring up a little bit later, but I, I think it's, it's worth bringing up now. And this is a, a hard one to explain. It's, it's a 2013 study in exercise and sports science. But they compared cyclists to runners, so very trained high-level cyclists to high-level runners to untrained athletes. Uh, to get a sense of the the distribution of their strengths. And without getting too deep into this, especially because I actually reread it last night and went, I'm struggling to fully get this. But when you talk about that, so they call it severe, but that zone three, that uh, above lactate threshold, really high intensity, they basically said in cyclists, untrained, and runners, all three cases, that represented about 30% of what they call their amplitude, their, their overall strength. And to clarify, you're saying zone three here in a three-zone model. In a three-zone model. So that's yeah. that above threshold, really high intensity. They said what differentiated cyclists, runners, and untrained was that zone one in the three-zone model, so that below aerobic threshold. So what we were just talking about, what the pros will spend five hours training in for high level experienced cyclists that was 52% of their capacity where for an untrained it was less than 40%. Let me simplify this. Your top end is always 30% above whether you're untrained, highly trained, whatever. And, and it doesn't seem like training is going to impact that very much. 
where you see the gains is in those lower intensities, and that pushes everything up. So, Jim, does that is that along the lines of what you what you're saying? Yeah, exactly. You don't have to use names here, but I'm wondering if a case study of a particular athlete you worked with over the years might be helpful to to hear about here. Whether it's somebody that came to you and had a completely different philosophy or a coach that was, was driving them into the ground and you had to, to take them out of that mindset and that coaching rhythm and apply this model to them. Or if it was a, someone that just didn't know what they were doing. And and so you had to sort of build this durability by, by having them do a lot of these heavy load, relatively lower fatigue, high zone two rides in a, in a five zone model. I'd probably have a, I don't know how many of those scenarios that have happened through the years. I think, a, I think a big challenge when you start working with an athlete and, and one is to understand what their strengths and weaknesses are. Of course, two is to really, really understand what their event is. Um, but then three is how you're going to get there. Like with a long-term vision and not, not just a short-term vision. Uh, and then you can start breaking down what they, they really need to focus on. I think for me with the, that high aerobic endurance or that zone two area, you can spend a lot, like, like we discussed earlier, you can spend a lot of time there and you really, you really can develop an engine. Um, I think regardless, and Trevor probably agrees with this, but regardless of what events you end up doing, the, the engine is critical. And you see this all the time with, with athletes. We train, we work hard, you spend 50 weeks a year for two good weeks, but in those two good weeks, you can do it all. You can sprint, you can climb, you can time trial. You don't, you become almost, it feels like fatigue resistant, but then it's gone. So I always try to try to build that engine so that you can, you can have a very high level. You bring people up to that as, as frequently as you can to that level. And then you, and then if you add specificity to whatever the event is coming up, like if I, if I think for an example, uh, a time trial. Um, and we can, we can even use a Christian Armstrong as an example. Um, we spent a massive amount of time building that motor when we came to, whether it was Beijing, London, or Rio, uh, specificity of that, uh, that particular event or the demand of that event, then we would spend a lot of time doing a lot of different intervals in that, in that time frame. Uh, so maybe a specific example to that, if we start with, with Beijing is, this was a essentially a 30-minute time trial. It was straight up, straight down. 20-minute um, climb followed by a 10-minute descent is essentially what it was. I think in this particular event, you had to touch the brakes exactly one time. Hmm. Um, so while we're, we spend a ton of time doing zone two rides, a ton of time doing the threshold, a lot of time doing strength endurance, uh, a lot of her intervals were, were on the climb that we found that was almost – identical to Beijing or mimicked it. Uh, and we did almost every effort on that hill, that interval. So if it was strength endurance, we did strength endurance on that climb. If it was threshold, we did threshold on that climb. If it was over unders, we did them on that climb. If any, any sort of workload we did, we did on that climb. Consequently, when she got to Beijing, uh, and her climb that she was training on was probably slightly longer and slightly steeper than the Beijing course. Uh, Beijing was actually easier for her. That was the, that was an easier race for her. 
So it almost sounds like with her, you were doing work that focused on the engine, building the engine, but you were bringing in an element of specificity by working on a climb that was similar to what she was going to be doing at Beijing. Yeah, that's exactly what we did. Uh, and, and, and did you bring in that specificity in terms of the terrain more, I would, I would assume that you, you worked towards bringing more of that in at closer to the event itself. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly how it worked early season. When we were, when we were focused on that engine, it could be everything. I mean, she would race everything. She would race, uh, local pro one, two races with the men. She would race, uh, international races with her trade team in Europe. Uh, so it, it, terrain was irrelative. If it was windy and flat in, in Holland, great. If it was climbing and hard in the uh, Alps in France, great. Um, but as we approached the Olympics, probably 12 weeks out, then, then, then that specificity of that climb became really important and really significant. So it's almost like you build the engine and this is actually leads to the question I really wanted to ask you. So it's, it sounds like you're, you're building the engine and then as you get closer to the event, then you go, mm -hmm. okay, let's do some specific work to learn how to use the engine for, for the event that's coming up. Yeah. Fine tune it for what's, what's, what the demand is going to be. And I would assume there's a, not to, not to take us off track too much, but there's a huge psychological component to that as well. Very, very. I mean, I think this is one thing that, that trainers and coaches uh, forget is that training is the means, not the competition. And the competition is what you're actually trying to succeed at. Um, I think too many, and I've also become guilty of it, where you're, you're looking at the training data and you're, you almost have a confirmation bias of saying, see, I was doing it right and, and the training was right. We just didn't perform on race day. And I think that, that you always have to remember in this, in this job is that race day is the day that the competition happens. So the question I really want to ask you, which I think you're, you're already, you've already half answered, and I always feel like I should introduce this as a time trialist road racer and a mountain biker walk into a bar. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but basically that question. So you're a few years out from the Olympics. And you're, you're at the Olympic Center. You have exactly that. You have a time trialer. You have a mountain biker. You have a, a, a road cyclist. So they're all getting ready for different events at the Olympics. To what degree do you say, okay, you go stand over there. You stand over here. And no, you're not going to talk with one another because you're all doing very different things versus an engine's an engine. Let's all go for a ride together because we're just... Uh, Yes, you're doing different events at the Olympics, but basically we're going to train you all the same. Where, where in that spectrum would you lie? I would, I would 100% lie in the train together. Um, you know, I think a, a privy of the position I've had is you see a lot of coaches and you see a lot of training plans and you see a lot of structured workouts. And I have to say that more times than not, I look at a lot of these structured workouts and I'm like, my God. If I had to do that workout and I had to cut and paste it onto a piece of paper so I could follow it or, or <laughs> replicate it, it stem. I would have, I would have never raced bikes. I would have quit. It, that's, that's just not fun. And I think there's a, there's a part of bike racing is fun and, and training is fun. Um, so I, as much as I am about structure and about specificity and, 
and building the engine. I also recognize that you have to have fun in the sport. Um, and I would say that if, if I took all three of those athletes and we were talking training, I would say 60% of their training almost looks the same. It's, it's, it wouldn't be cut and paste or replicated, but uh, for the most part, at least in my methodology, you go through a big, at the beginning of the year, big 12 week build program, uh, which is primarily aerobic, uh, works into to some strength endurance, some torque, um, but to then ultimately ends up with big blocks of, of the zone two, uh, or I call it endurance plus because it's slightly harder, harder than, than riding two by two. Um, and it's constant pressure on the pedals. And I, I am crazy about when I talk about doing big blocks of it, I do like four or five hours of that stuff. Um, and it's, there's no stopping. I, I, I can't stand coffee stop rides. It resets the body. Thank you. You needed somebody to say that. Yeah. <laughs> you, you refuel it. It just like starts the clock over again. I'm like, that's, that was not the goal of this. The goal is that there's this, uh, continual fatigue, which is, uh, initially not bad, but by hour three and four and five, it's, it, it starts to become heavy and, and the workload hasn't changed. And that forces the adaptation. Uh, but for the most part, up to about that point, I would say I train most athletes the same way. And then once we have that, that engine really starting to hum, then we may have some specificity changes. Um, and that's, you know, for me, I look at it a little bit. I think what I've been really good at is the ability to break down an event to what it really is and what athletes what a particular athlete may need to be really good at that event. Um, so if I took at, at that point, if I just took a road racer versus a mountain bike racer and, and for uh, just sake of discussion, we could say men or women, a road racer primarily creates uh, power through cadence, right? So once they're racing and, and they're moving that anytime you have fluctuations in speed power, most of it's coming from leg speed and cadence. So I may focus more effort and energy in the, in the intervals on cadence uh, than with a road racer than I would a mountain bike racer. With a mountain bike racer, I may focus more on, on torque. I think most of mountain bike racing, most of mountain bike racers, the power is developed through torque. So it's low, lower RPMs. It's a lot of in the saddle strength. So I may, I may change at that point in time where, where they may be doing more torque related efforts than, than the road racer would, but up, you know, 60% of the training that is, is very similar. It's all, it's all about the, the bigger motor. Well, we had training peaks, head of technology and top level coach, Tim Cusick on the show a couple episodes ago to discuss TSS. We thought it'd be very interesting to get his thoughts on the engine versus specificity question, both as a coach and a data guy. Yeah, so we decided, we've been talking about this a little bit on uh, some recent episodes and decided we wanted to do a whole episode on should you just train as big an engine as you can get or should you be highly specific to the, the races that you're doing? So I wanted to get your thoughts on this. Do you try to train more the engine or do you try to really tailor your athletes to the events they're doing? I'm a big engine guy in my training periodization philosophy, right? It's just two phases. You have the train phase and you're really training to get into that performance. You have the train phase and you have the performance phase. 
all of your training phase is to raise the engine. And don't get me wrong, we'll have some limiter at work and some like a little bit, I might tweak how we get there based on the specificity, but my general goal is get the aerobic engine big. I want, you know, if you were to put a, a metric to it, I want to push the threshold up from below during all of that time frame. So maybe a little time here and there, but don't get me wrong, but that's my general goal. I want to get that engine as big as possible because then I do believe in flicking the specificity switch, but very short window. Like when I, for me, it's usually three to five weeks and three is the core, right? Three or four is the core. And really all that training, then I'll do a short flick into specificity, bang it at something hard, right? Hit that real hard, all of that training, that big engine training was meant that you could do more work in that performance phase and that specificity or maybe what people would call the build phase. I want, them to, I want the athlete to be able to do a ton of good work in that phase, quality, strong work in that phase. Then short taper, depends on the athlete, back to what I was saying before, right into the performance phase. So, but generally my goal is a big engine. You know, one of the things that Andy taught me early is that that threshold really is the number one indicator of performance success. And time and time again, I have to say that has come true. That doesn't mean you don't need specificity, you don't need skill, you know, the crit rider example and this and that. But at the end of the day, if you had one thing to do and only one you could focus on, build that engine, drive FTP as the engine building goal, right? And then if you get a little specificity around that ticket. Question this brings up in my mind, and, and this goes back more to your point about Kristen Armstrong, and you were saying essentially you got 52 weeks in a year and, and two weeks matter. So you can spend a lot of time building an engine and then introduce race specificity, whether it's through terrain or efforts or both, and and get her ready for that target. The wrench that I want to throw into the conversation is, does this conversation apply to most amateurs because they might not have the luxury of building or spending all that time working on their engine and then applying the specificity they might want to just race 15 times a year across five months and i know jim you probably don't have all that much experience with amateurs Oh, you'd be surprised. Yeah. Okay. Well, good. Good. I want to. So I want to hear from both of you. What? How does this apply to the the masters racer out there? If I was going to make an argument for specificity, it would be more on the pro side. For the amateur, a lot of who whom are just having some fun. I, I'm just going to say, let's just build an engine because a that's fun. B, you generally aren't targeting, spending four years targeting a single event. Why would you want to be that specific? The only place I'm ever really specific with the master's athletes I work with is when that is really consistent with the having, having fun. So, for example, I have one master's athlete I work with. He did one crit and said, never again. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and he loves time trialing. So we're being time trial specific simply because he gets enjoyment out of that. Yeah. And he's mostly doing this for enjoyment. Trevor's exactly right. It applies maybe even more to amateurs. I actually will take on masters, riders, if whatever they're trying to accomplish is interesting for me. But also, but secondly, it challenges you to think differently. And that's, I think, the thing with, 
with training is you have to, to be really good. You have to really think about it and think from a different angle and think from a different mode or a different discipline or how are you going to approach it? A couple of years ago, I took a, took on a 72 year old who wanted to go to masters cyclocross worlds. And I'm like, okay, that that's super interesting. Right. I mean, I've not coached anybody who's 72 years old before it's cyclocross. So it's in it for a 70, 70 year old group. They're looking at a 35 minute race. So you could, you could break that down and say, well, look, we just need to be able to do uh, repeats of 30 seconds on 15 seconds off all day long. And he'll be perfect. Uh, or you can make him more fit than he's ever been in his life. And he can absorb those efforts that are coming at him and consequently probably absorb more than he could produce. Uh, so his best chance of an outcome is, is with just a bigger uh, level, a higher level of fitness and absorbing those efforts as they came towards him, uh, which is what we ended up doing as well. A year ago, I took on a 35-year-old race in Masters and basically did the same thing. Just like, look, you, you spent years and years and years and years doing these these short intervals and this, this high intensity training, I'm like, but you never really took the chance to, to do 20 hour weeks or do 18 hour weeks or 17 hour weeks, whatever you, whatever you have time for in your, your professional life and, and work and family. Um, we'll still keep the intensity in there, keep that intensity involved, but you're probably already pretty good at it. And if we can just build a little bit more fitness on that, you can probably do a lot more than you've been doing. Uh, so I'd, I'd agree with Trevor that, that in an amateur athlete, that that extra focus or emphasis on uh, aerobic capacity is probably going to be more rewarding than than the effort on the, the high intensity side. So I want to take a bit of an about face here and, and go back. You, you brought up, and I appreciated this. The you have looked at some of this interval work that's been given to athletes and just gone, that'd make me quit, or, or I'd have to put a roadmap on my handlebars just to know how to do this. Mm-hmm. What is your, so getting back to the specificity question, what is your opinion on intervals? So we've, we've had Dr. Seiler on the show who, who has taken more of the approach of it's just time at intensity, however you, you want to cut that, versus there's a lot of people go, well, you're this type of rider, you got this type of event, so you have to do this specific order of intervals because that's highly specific to the, the event. What, what's your feeling? Are intervals intervals, or do the intervals really need to be tailored to the, the event type? You know, I tend to agree with Siler on most things. I love, I love listening to him talk. Um, he, he's extremely knowledgeable in, uh, yeah. in his field, and that southern drawl just kind of sucks you in. Just, yes, it does. We, we were talking about that, that mix between a Texan accent and a Norwegian accent. You could just yeah. listen to it all day. You never heard that before. He's got a smooth delivery, that guy. He does. And and whether, you know, I don't know. I just, I agree with him. I, I tend to think that our body and in, in how we divine these energy systems and, and specifically intervals, we're just, it's not that fine. We're not that, we're not that sophisticated. Um, when you tell somebody 280, the body really doesn't know the difference between 278, 275, 283, et cetera. So I, I tend to, to dump things into bigger buckets, um, change the inter- intervals up accordingly. Uh, I do, you know, I do take a threshold interval and I like to do it a couple ways. I do, I do long threshold intervals, 15 minutes, 10, 15, 20 minutes. Um, when we're building fitness, 
But then when I really start to, we start to get to race season, then I think that uh, the broken intervals, the three on one off, but you're doing 15 minutes of it, uh, tends to elicit a little bit different response. You end up with a higher power output. It's, it's a harder interval. Um, and I think for your, your bang for your buck and racing, you get more out of that. Um, but honestly, I think that the Siler's right, that a lot of this goes into, into big buckets and it's, it's, it's number and duration. So I actually last night tried to find some studies that, that countered this. Um, and again, this goes back to that contradiction. We talked about building the engine. You want to target the, the particular capacities. And so here's our next contradiction, which is I kept finding in the studies exactly what you're saying, which was high intensity is high intensity. It just doesn't matter. So I found one study of cyclists where they had one group of, of cyclists doing um, what they're, so they're comparing it to uh, your, your VO2 max power. So one group was doing their interval work above VO2 max. The other group was doing what they were calling submax intensity, so about I think it was ninety percent of their VO2 max, so pretty close to their threshold. And they were looking at improvements in time trial performance, and both groups had exactly the same improvement. They had another study in runners where they they were looking at improvements in their 10k time, and they had one group of runners again doing more threshold type work, and they had the other group of runners doing sprint work. So super short, super high intensity, and again, exact same improvement in their 10K time. Mm -hmm. So just again and again and again, it was just simply, you got to do some high intensity work. And I did find studies that said, well, if you don't do high intensity work, no, you, you can't perform that well. So you have to have some. But after that, it just doesn't all this belief that, well, sprint work trains this and Tabata's trained that and threshold trains that, it doesn't necessarily seem to be panning out. It sounds like that's kind of what, what you're saying as well. I think I'd probably break my buckets into, into that, uh, above threshold, below threshold, at threshold, maybe below threshold, and then just that aerobic zone. But within those buckets, then, yeah, mix it up, change the, change the number of intervals, change the length of them, change the change the power slightly, change the requirements, but I still think they group into those, those three main buckets. And so Dr. Seiler actually even did a, a study about this, and, and his conclusion was the most important thing is the mix. So going back to that whole overload principle, the issue with high intensity is it causes a lot of autonomic stress. So if you do too much high intensity, you cook yourself, you, you overtrain. So you can only handle so much of that. But the problem is if you can only do so much high intensity, you might not get enough of a stimulus for an overload. So what they ultimately concluded is the best way to train the engine is that mix of a couple high intensity sessions with a lot of that zone one or in the five zone mm -hmm. model, zone two work that doesn't seem to produce a lot of autonomic stress, doesn't seem to push you towards overtraining but gives you that extra stimulus that you actually get an overload. Yeah, I think that's right. And that's, that's really consistent with, with how I look at it and do it as well. I think that that, let's say above threshold, the VO2 systems, they, they also train really quickly, right? So it, where you can spend 
months trying to improve a threshold, if you, if you commit a couple weeks to uh, VO2 work, that system and that, those powers really, they re, they respond and they, they jump up really quickly. You don't see that with the aerobic powers. So I think that when you, when you do that, you do have to be careful with it. You do have to manage the, the fatigue or more appropriately manage the rest. Um, but they, they also respond really quickly. For those out there listening who think, oh, I can, uh, you know, polarize my training by sitting on the couch for four days and then two days a week, I'll just go out and do some threshold intervals. That's not going to work. On the flip side, for those who are like, oh, I'll polarize my training by, well, or not polarize it, but I'll just do a whole bunch of long, slow aerobic threshold rides or these high zone two rides or endurance plus rides, whatever name you give to them, that's going to do something, but it's going to, it's not going to be everything for you. So what you're saying here is there has to be a combination of these things of volume and intensity in the right balance. It's something we've said a hundred times before. This is more, a more nuanced way of saying the, the engine is most finely tuned with a, a really good balance of long and slow and hard and, hard and intense. And that was certainly in the research I read, it was basically, you got to do high intensity, whatever your type of high intensity you do, yeah, doesn't matter that much. But if you only do high intensity, you don't see a lot of results. If you only do low intensity, you don't see a lot of results. It's it's in the mix. And the the last thing I'll point out, and I got, uh, I've been looking forward to this conversation because I got to pull out all my favorite studies for this one, <laughs> is this great study by by Dr. Larson or review it wasn't actually a study, which is the train for intense exercise performance, high intensity or high volume training. And this is actually the study that that really dives into that whole PGC one alpha channel and talks about the four ways that you can stimulate it and says, basically, low intensity stimulates it one way, high intensity stimulates it another way. And what you tend to see is the high intensity way produces gains very rapidly, but they, they peak also very rapidly. Mm -hmm. Low intensity seems to cause improvements very slowly, but far, the, the, there's obviously always a limit, but the limit is much, much higher. So you could see much bigger gains. Yeah. And that's, if there's any way I could summarize it, that's, that's the gist of it's everything this, I've read. It's this additive effect. You right. hit all of these energy systems and you get something out of them by targeting them in some way. And the collective gains that you see from each of them adds up. Yep. Did I say that? Did I say that well? I don't think that I said that well, but I think <laughs> people get the point that this this is, um, you know, maybe it's logical to us. I don't know that it's logical to everybody, but this combination is additive. Yeah, I think you said that great, to be honest. Um, I think, you know, there's also something else to, to when you think, when I think about intervals also in, in doing this kind of work is is the psychological preparation of it. And, you know, at the sharp end of a bike race, there, there's every voice in your head saying you can't do this. And there's generally one voice saying you can, uh, so you're fighting a lot of things, but I think in training, when you, 
when you do a lot of this work and, and when I go to this zone two or this endurance plus stuff, where it's just hours of, of grinding at that, at that power and constant pressure on the pedals, mentally you start to believe that, that you're doing something more than others and you're capable of this. I think the, the same thing happens with, with VO2 work. If you do like five by five is my favorite. And I think it's the least favorite. Everybody I know that races bikes. Uh, and, and there's plenty of studies that would, would suggest that there's other ways to improve VO2 other than doing five by five. We know that five by five works, but that psychological battle of five by five that hardens people into warriors. It is uh, tough. It is nasty. And and so I also, I, I do think a lot about the mental aspect of the, of the physiological work we're doing as well and what, the, what that mental outcome is. And really, I think if, if you look at them, most of the riders I coach that have been successful, you would, everybody would describe them as a warrior. When they go to race and they go to, they go to, they get in the arena, they're not the one you want to come across. <laughs> One of the first interviews I ever conducted for a training article was with Dr. Inigo Sanbalan, the head physiologist for UAE. It was over the phone, and I had no idea how to record interviews, so forgive the quality. But I'll also say it was one of the most insightful interviews I've ever had. Dr. Sanbalan dives into the physiology behind training the engine. Um, so really the question I wanted to ask is, is the best training purely race-specific or should the best training be targeting physiological systems, even if you're doing work that isn't that race specific? Yeah, I mean, I agree that it's it's about being more physiologically efficient uh, overall, right? You have uh, all the energy systems in place; it's going to help you across the board. And that's something that we see in all the world class athletes. You know, they, they don't train specific, and they all the, always. I mean, they, they might obviously they train more specific one year. If they're a time trialist, you know, or a classic writer, they might train more of that duration or the high intensity, but they really train the rest of the parameters as well, right? Uh, so that is like, a, you know, like a, 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 a climber doesn't just do climb, right? right? They do a lot of endurance race, uh, uh, training. And, and that's across the board, not just in cycling, but, uh, uh, you know, all, all the top sports. You know, that's about you. It's, you need to have all the energy systems in place and well-developed as much as you can because they complement each other. And again, you, you might have, uh, you might be a quick writer and just do creeps and creeps and, 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 and one-hour effort, and therefore you, you, you're uh, increasing a lot that, that glycolytic capacity of the, of the fast twitch fibers with all the element. But again, you know, you're not going to be able to clear out as much lactate, right? Because you're not gonna, if you don't do like a more like a endurance-based training, you're gonna miss a good component, you know. Therefore, you're gonna be, uh, yeah. you're not gonna be able to improve. I mean, to give your 100 percent at the end of a of a criterion, you know. Whereas if you have all the elements in place, you're gonna travel through the criterion much better. Same as sprinter, you know. This is something, and, and I've done this with with quick riders. You know, I've done. I've now with many quick riders, you know, hey, you know, you have a great, great turbo, great glycolytic capacity, but you can't clear out the byproducts of that turbo with that lactate, for example. So you need to improve your aerobic capacity, you know, through you know, increasing the, uh, 
uh, the slow twitch fibers, and, and they have great results. Same thing for sprinters, you know, you're a sprinter and uh, it's all about sprinting, sprinting, but no, I mean, at the end of the day, at a race, the sprinter not, not always is the fastest who wins, but it's the ones who gets there the freshest. Right. Right? And in, and in order to get there the freshest, you know, you may have to very good lack of capacity. Just the last five kilometers, you know, are brutal, right? And that's what we see many sprinters, they, they cannot keep up with the pace. And that might be super, super fast, but yeah, you know, in a 100-meter race, right? But not in a, you know, 80, 100, 120K race, right? Where they get worn out by the end of the, of the, of the race. I've seen this so many times, you know, they, 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 and then once they start improving their, their aerobic capacity, right? Uh, and they do miles and miles and miles or kilometers, whatever you prefer. Yeah, they, they, they improve a lot. They're spraying. They say, wow, I'm, I'm faster. No, you're actually not faster. You just get their expression, fresher, so you can give your 100% or right. close to your 100%. What would you say are the key physiological systems for cyclists? I think the key physiological systems is, uh, is uh, definitely the glycolytic system, which is where you win the races. Right in that high intensity effort, the glycolytic system is key. Mm-hmm. Uh, you need to have very well developed systems. If you're a sprinter, obviously you need to have uh, all the ATP PC system right in place. They're very good. And there's a, there's a bit also of genetic component there. Uh, and then lastly, it's, it's absolutely key to have a good lactic clearance capacity system, and that happens, you know, by improving the, the mitochondrial function. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also the, the slow twitch capacity to clear lactate, uh, which at the same time, you know, as I always say, if you to birth with one stone, if you improve mitochondrial density, you're going to be able to clear lactate better, and you're also going to be able to utilize fat better. So it's going to uh, preserve glycogen for the last part of the race. So it's about all the support system, the, yeah, the glycolytic capacity, the lactic clearance capacity, and the fat oxidation capacity. And it's all different training for each? Yes, that, that's what I, I believe I see. And, and, and these are kind of the concepts that I, that I, 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 I term the, the metabolic training, that I would like to kind of push for that concept, you know. So it's the metabolic training is about training all the metabolic events or the metabolic parameters, right, that you're going to be needing or having during the competition. Right, so in a competition, it doesn't matter what kind of competition. You're gonna need uh, high glycolytic capacity, right? You're gonna need, uh, you know, high sprinting capacity towards the end, and you're gonna need also high lactic capacity and high fat oxidation capacity, right? So that you, you, you need to train all, you need to metabolic train, right? All these components. And so for the, you know, the glycolytic, we're talking very short, high intensity. For the fat oxidation, obviously, we're talking about that training below two millimoles. For the, the, the lactate side, for the, be able to clear lactate. Yeah, um, sure. so, yeah you need that, uh, the, the slow twitch muscle fibers, right? And that's uh, the maximum, the, 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 the mitochondrial lactate oxidative complex. Right, which is it's just mainly in those type one muscle fibers, so you have to stimulate those, okay. and therefore also the transporters. But also you need to also stimulate the glycolytic capacity because it's going to help you to uh, export lactate outside the cell. 
But that's the thing, that the two complement each other because the lactate produced in the fast twitch muscle fibers is cleared mainly in the slow twitch muscle fibers. So that's right. why you need to train both fibers. So you really feel that you, you need to either be training at that below two millimoles or you need to be training well up above four millimoles to, to, to stimulate these different systems? specificity proponents who say most of racing is actually done between two and four millimoles, so that's where you should be doing all your training. Well, that's, that's a very good question, too. And, 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 and to be honest, the way I, I, I mean, I would not say like polarized, that's what I'm fond of. I think that I, I definitely contemplate those training. Well, that's what I call this one three, right? Right. And that's where like, I have a, a, a cyclist training there, too. Because that's important too, you know, to kind of reproduce the competition, right? Uh, and that's why that, 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 you know, that the exercise intensity, the one they travel through the race, right? Okay, but uh, but again, you know, like the, the race is always decided in the higher intensities, right? Right. And in order to be able to be successful at dealing with those higher intensities for the longer amount of time, you need to clear a lactate very well, and for that you need to train that. that the slow twitch muscle fibers, right? But again, I, I really think, I mean, I, I, I don't think that we should rule out that, that middle intensity, that, that that's the one that you travel through the rate, right? I think that intensity you need to throw there as well. And that's why I call the zone three. That, that, that's a transition zone between these two metabolic points that I talk about, right? Between towards zone two yep. and zone four, Zone four would be like your lactate threshold. And zone two, that's uh, intensity uh, where you elicit the adaptation to lactate clearing. And then zone three is kind of the transition zone. Okay. But, so but it's, not, it's not quite the polarized, you know, it's a little, I think it's about trying to, trying to stimulate as many uh, energy systems as possible. possible. Okay. So you really do feel train all, all zones. I believe so, but, but again, those, those two main zones are, the, the, to me, in my opinion, are the most important. That zone two, right, and that work-like capacity. Those are the most, the most important ones, which is a form of a polarized training, too. Yeah. This episode of Fast Talk is brought to you by Whoop. Whoop is offering 15% off with the code FASTTALK. That's F-A-S-T-T-A-L-K at checkout. Go to whoop, that's W-H-O-O-P dot com, and enter Fast Talk at checkout to save 15%. Sleep better, recover faster, and train smarter. Optimize your performance with Whoop. 
the first time I guess I was introduced to these endurance plus type rides was when um, a few years ago I decided to do Dirty Kanza a second time. First time I did it, I didn't. I did just rode my bike. I wasn't doing anything in particular, just riding as much as possible. That was my method. The second time around, since we were doing it for an article, Trevor and I worked together, and he started having me do these rides. And initially. I think they don't turn you into a warrior. They make you feel like you're a total wimp because you can't mm-hmm. do them. They're a lot harder than you think they're going to be. Oh, just go out and ride, you know, like sort of hard, but not really hard. Just do it for five, six hours or do it as long as you can. Yeah, you three can. hours, two hours. Three hours. It's- it doesn't seem like much. Um, but then that's th- these are the types of ride that uh, turn you into a – whether you're male or female, they turned you into a hard man or a hard woman. Mm -hmm. Like they just toughen you up. And that's exactly what you're saying. They turn you into a warrior. Like you feel really prepared. You feel ready for the suffering that is innate in cycling. Yeah. You have to embrace it. And it it is the game. And I think that, you know, when I, when I use zone two with a young rider or a new rider to me, we'll spend a year of a full year, maybe even 18 months of just that stuff. That's all we do. I don't add anything to it. When you get to these, uh, take a world tour guy, for example, they'll do a, a zone two endurance plus ride five hours. It, it, you know, call it 300 Watts, but then we'll get into at the end of it, we'll get into the VO two work or the, uh, watt prime work or the, you know, the, the Tabatas and you're layering on additional demand on that. But that psychological piece is like, okay, I can race Roubaix now. I can race Flanders. I can do this because I've done this in training and I did it by myself. Now I'm going to go into racing and I've got all this extra stimuli. I can, I can handle this. And, and so when they get into that nasty end of a bike race, uh, it's, it's the voice that's overriding them isn't the, I can't do this. I've, I've not been here. It's the voice saying, you can do this. You've done this in training. You've done this by yourself. And, and I think that's when you really start to mix the two psychological battles with the physiology that you start to, to really build warriors. Yeah, that's a, a really good point. I love the, the bringing the psychological side because I think that is actually the domain of a lot of the specificity. So I actually, I'm thinking of an athlete who I am coaching who he, he is one of the best trainers I've ever worked with. You give him work to do and he does it spot on every single time. But struggles in races. And it's that when it gets hard in a race, it's that lack of belief that he can do it. Um, and I, I remember a month and a half ago, I got on Zwift with him. At the time, I was having to do four by eight minute intervals. He was doing his, his eight minute intervals at about 320, 330 watts. So we're in this race on Zwift that's on the London Loop, and there's about an eight-minute climb in it, and he gets popped Mm -hmm. on the climb doing 280 watts. And had to have that conversation with him of, why'd you get popped? He's like, well, it's too hard. Like, but you do intervals 40 watts harder. Context really matters for him. And it was, so this is a case of the, the mental side was working against him. And what we ended up doing was we just got on Zwift every week. And I'm just like, we, we got to change the mindset around. And, and that's where the specificity helped. We just jumped in race after race after race. And I just went, 
I just want you to hurt yourself. I want you to believe <laughs> that you can hang with these people. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, there's a lot to it. You know, climber, if you think of climbing, you can be climbing 280 watts. You can be the first guy in the group and you feel great. You can be the fifth guy or the sixth guy in line and you feel terrible because you have no control of the throttle. Right. And, and, and learning to let that go and not check the gauges and not constantly do that self-evaluation is that that's, that's half the battle. That's one of the things I do when I'm in a race and I'm not feeling good and we're going up a climb, I move to the front because mm -hmm. there's that mental side of, well, I can't be feeling that bad if I'm on the front. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Where, like right. you said, if you're sitting 10th wheel and you're hurting, you, you, your mind just dives into Second that pain. guesses everything that you're doing. Yeah. 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 And I, I love that. I love that side of the sport. First wheel on a climb, you're like, I'm hurting, but so is everybody else. 10th wheel on the climb, you're like, I'm hurting, but the nine guys in front of me aren't. Right. Well, it also, I think some, some aspect of that is if I, if I'm on the front, I'm doing the hurting. If I'm 10th wheel, I'm being hurt. So you're yep. either, you're the, the, yeah, you are either dictating it or it's being dictated to you and it's much more a comfortable place to be the one dictating the, the pain or the pace or both. <laughs> yep. So. Yep. Jim, again, not to get off track here, but how much of this type of psychology work do you do with these elite athletes that you're working with? Um, we're talking about some of the best American cyclists uh, in history, I guess you could say, with their gold medals, um, in multiple gold medals. How much work are you having to do with them to toughen up their mind? I probably do a ton, but it, it's now it's become an aid to me. And you also, I think, I, I do think I get the benefit of the, the reputation now. So, so I think people are, athletes are much less inclined to call me and tell me they can't finish a workout than, than they used to be. They don't want to, they don't want to let me down. They don't want to disappoint me. Uh, they don't want to tell me they can't do something. So I think I get the benefit of the doubt that, that I'll have athletes suffer through something before they'll call me. But uh, I think I work on this all the time. Kate Courtney, actually, she's, she spoke about this before, uh, so I, I don't mind bringing it up. Uh, we, had a, we had a training block she did a couple of years ago when I first started working with her. And I always like to say that, that there, there comes a time in an athlete's trajectory when they're working with you that you, you have to show them how tough they are. They don't know how tough they are. Kate was finishing a big block. Uh, I specifically put in a five-by-five five at the, the very last day. I knew going on the last day that she was, she was already tired. She was already cooked. She was pretty young. She was 21. Then I knew my phone was going to ring all day long. <laughs> and you didn't answer the phone. Did you? I didn't answer the phone. I sat there and, and watched it ring. Didn't answer it. Another 10 minutes would go by phone would ring again, the phone would ring again. Finally, after what I thought would be the end of the interval session, I picked up the phone and, and, she was like, she was in tears and she's like, I can't do that. That's so hard. Oh my God. That was mean. You know, you're being mean. And when she was done talking, I said, I'm like, but did you do with him? And she's like, yes, every single one of them. And I'm like, did you do them at the, the power prescribed? She's like, yes, every single one of them. I'm like, then you could do it. See, you're, you're better than you think you are. She's like, but you have to admit that was mean. <laughs> And I'm like, okay, you know, right. I'm like, if that's what I admit that, then 
been fine. But that day, I know 100% that she realized that she was way better than she thought she was. She was capable of way more than she was than she thought she was capable of. And from that day forward, she started walking with more swagger straight away. Yeah. And I'm like, that is when you have a dangerous athlete. When when they start to believe that they're capable of things, then then you've started to create something. And I think as a as a coach, uh, you have to do that. I mean, your job as a coach is to challenge and to push and try to get more out of people. There, there's there's a line where too much is too much. Um, but that's that's the art of coaching, right? That comes with experience and knowledge and initially you're not very good at where that line is as you get older you're, you you become more uh, confident where that line is and when you can push and when you can't push and when you should and when you shouldn't uh, but I think as a coach your job is to absolutely push and challenge and and try to get more out of your athlete that's that's ultimately how you supercharge that motor well I want to plug our one of our past episodes because We've had Kate Courtney on Fast Talk before. I think she actually told that very story but from, <laughs> her perspe- from her perspective. Think of the same thing. Um, it was episode 76, When to Push and When to Pull the Plug with Kate Courtney and Whoop. Um, so that was all about, I mean, it, it's a fascinating discussion with Kate because A, um, she uh, opens up about some of these things, about you know, she's a world champion, but she has these vulnerabilities too. Mm-hmm. It's great to hear that. She's also a very good athlete and knows herself really well and has a ton of insight into her body and what it takes and how she can push it. And as you've just described, but she doesn't know everything um, about herself, you know, and she's still learning. She's very young. So it's a great, great episode, episode 76. So check that out. So I love the fact that. We started this episode saying we're going to have this discussion about is it building the engine or is it specificity, and now we're we're going down this unexpected road of really <laughs> you're saying there's this third element which is mental, and I think of we've had some pros come in and and be on the show and talk about this whole concept of you know what we all can do about the same five minute effort we can all do the same one minute effort. That's not what wins the race. Everybody thinks it's about your five minute power. It's not. And my experience and, and what I've heard them say is it really comes down to, we're gonna make this race bloody hard and see who sticks it out. So it's build the best engine and the best brain. It's just that, yeah. that You have to have both. And I've, I've, I can't tell you how many races. I remember my, my first experience with a, a pro race, that moment when they stretch it out, when you're sitting there on somebody's wheel doing 500 watts in the worst pain you've ever been in in your life, wondering what the heck is going on, especially because it all comes back together. Mm-hmm. There's nothing that strategic about it. And, and my old coach explained to me, he's like, it's a mental game. Because you're sitting there dying on a wheel going, and somebody is on the front driving this pace. Right. Yep. Yep. It's such a complex thing in some ways to to um, explain to people that haven't been in that situation. Um, experience plays such a big role in your ability as a cyclist because you've been in certain scenarios. First time you deal with that scenario, you're like, there's absolutely no way I'll ever get back with the field I'm just going to give up now. 
you do that enough times, you realize, no, I can, I honestly, I don't even, I can let this, I can sit on these wheels all day. It's, it's going to come back together. And you get a sense for those types of things, or you get a sense for how hard and how long you can tolerate those painful moments and come back from them. And then perhaps even surge ahead and win. So yeah, building, building the best brain you can is the third component here that we haven't, we didn't put in the title of the show, <laughs> but it's a, it's a big component here. And part of that can be worked on in training as we've spoken about a little bit here. And part of it comes through racing and racing alone. Jim, a question for you then. When you are trying to bolster somebody's mental capacity, mental strength, their uh, psychological attributes in training, do you have tricks that you use here? Not unlike what you just described, turning off the phone and letting Kate Courtney suffer through that so that she does realize she's capable of something. Are there any other examples here that you want to give? I think for me, it's all, it is probably intuitive for me, but, uh, you know, I think a lot of times as a coach, you, you have to, you have to believe in them before they can believe in themselves. Uh, they start to believe in themselves because you believe in them. But that, you know, I, I guess when we talked about pushing and, and, and challenging, uh, probably the other word I should have thrown in there is encouraging, right? You have to encourage them to do that. You have to encourage them to try. You have to, encourage them to uh, fail. And inevitably when you're challenging somebody and you're, you're pushing them into that uncomfort, uncomfortable zone, uh, they're going to fail and you have to encourage that. And when that happens, then you have to pick them up and you have to dust them off and, and let them fail well and let them be, let them fail without being a failure. I think that's, that's a really important part too. When people fail is to not make them a failure for that fail for failing. Uh, they're, they're two entirely different things and, and to fail in something is just part of the process. That's, that's how it works. Uh, but it's, it's through that, that failing that they become persistent and, and, and resilient. And, and, and I think when you're both persistent and resilient, then inevitably you'll, you'll become successful. The success then just becomes a byproduct. I think we have said that before, and that's been something that I, I believe in strongly, which is if you are never failing, if you're winning every race that you're in, you're not challenging yourself. Yeah. And that's training too. I mean, you can't, you can't win every training day. You can't set PRs every single day. That's a very good point. Some days are just going to suck and that's how it is. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Yes, for sure. Uh, it, it, yeah. When they do, then fine. They sucked. You know what? Today wasn't awesome, but, but you got through the, the interval session or you got through the work the best you could. And, or in some cases you didn't even get through it. And that's, that's just how it is. That's, that's done and, and, uh, move on. I'm sure this has been your experience as a coach. This has certainly been mine, but the, one of the most frequent calls is when an athlete has that not so great day on the bike and they immediately want to know, what does this mean? Why could I do the power I did last time? And, and your answer is always just, you just didn't have your best day. <laughs> Most cases, it doesn't mean anything. Right. So I always tell the athletes, look, yeah, it's one bad day. Now, if this happens five times in a row, then we have a conversation. Exactly. And, and that's why we have so many metrics we measure too, right? That's why we have so many different parameters that we take in as data 
and analyze and collectively it means something, but individually it may not mean anything. So how often, uh, we are going down a tangent here, but I just love this conversation because uh, this is something I deal with every week. How often do you have athletes that just have that bad day and absolutely destroy themselves to hit the numbers they were hitting on a good day and end up failing at their workout? I mean, it's not my favorite. I don't try to, I don't like to see that happen all the time. Uh, but I know when you're pushing that happens. Um, so I think it, it, it depends upon the context of whatever block of training you're in or what you're trying to accomplish in that training. So, it, I mean, it happens. Uh, I think with everybody, it happens. I think you have to do it, but I'm with you. I wouldn't, uh, two or three days in a row of failure. Then, then I'm like, okay, we have to, we have to take a look at what we're doing. Maybe we need to stop. Maybe we need to rest. Maybe we need a break. Um, maybe we need to talk about what's going on in your life. Um, but something's not working because you're not at the, you're not doing what you're capable of. Uh, the flip side of that is yes, if you're pushing, then, uh, they may fail a couple times before they get it. Um, yeah. but that's planned and, and you're aware of that. So when they do call and they, they're panicked, that's the encouraging part of, of, Hey, just keep, keep at it, keep grinding, keep, keep hitting it. Don't give up. Don't quit. Uh, and I think that's where you really knowing those two different things is where you really start to be able to know when to push and not know when not to push. And, and I do think that that's ultimately what gets you to that, that warrior mentality or the, that psychological warrior. Well, it's a tricky balance. And that's kind of what I was getting at is the, those little eccentricities, which is when I have an athlete who hasn't, isn't having a good day, and they push to hit their their peak numbers and fail. I, I'm of mixed emotions from a training standpoint. That wasn't the smartest thing. They should have just backed down 10, 20 watts and, and successfully gotten through the intervals. But going back to what you were saying about the mental side and that that warrior mindset, I kind of admire when they have a bad day and they go, "No, I'm gonna try to get through this. I'm gonna try to do this because that's you're gonna have those days in races." Yeah, that's it. And they have to learn to do it. They have to, they have to know they can. Shall we sort of try to bring this back on track now that we've had a very good tangent into the psychological realm? <laughs> well, I've been loving this. Yeah, yeah. Training the engine. What? Let's hear from both of you on the, the importance of this balanced training approach. Trevor, do you want to start us? into our concluding remarks here a bit? I'll keep it short because, again, I'm really excited to hear Jim's answer. And, and Jim, please, you, you brought up some things we didn't even think of. Uh, I hope you actually take us down another rabbit hole of some really interesting <laughs> conversations. But, uh, Chris, I, I think you hit the, the operative word, which is the balance. It, it goes back to, you know, yes, I am a believer in train the engine, uh, particularly because I think if all you're ever doing is is race specific training, you're, you're you are going to push over training, or just not get enough of a training stimulus to ever get particularly strong. So I, I am a believer in build that engine, and the the sum total of of everything I've read, everything I've experienced is training the engine is about balance. It's the mix of work. It's not about the magic interval workout, that magic prescription that you, as we said, you have to print out and put on your handlebars because it's that complicated. It seems 
high-end work, yeah, there's slight variances, but for the most part, it's just getting the high-end work in. But it's balancing that with low-intensity work, uh, hitting the hitting this engine from from all sides, and and getting the proper training stimulus. But Jim, really addressing here, what do you have to say? And like I said, take take us down some tangents. <laughs> uh, man, I'm good at taking people down rabbit holes. For me, the engine is about it's it's about consistency. It's 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 week to week, it's month to month, it's year to year to, to really build a big engine. You, you can't do it and you can't put together a good spring of training and say, I did the work. It's just not enough. You have to put together years and years and years of it to, to build the big engine. A good spring training is important, but a good summer of racing followed by a good fall of training, followed by a good winter of training. Um, primarily, I mean, if you look at a cyclist, career we're looking at 10 12 years uh injury free not getting sick all these things really add up quickly to this engine building so i look at it it really the long-term uh approach and and really try to put together year after year after year i think when you do that then you really you really build a big engine what i would say with, with that analogy is you kind of see there there is a place for specificity but that's kind of the icing on the cake. That's the icing. Or if Colby Pierce were here, that's the salt in the soup that brings all the flavors out, accentuates the flavors. <laughs> I haven't used the salt analogy in a while. I, I figured I'd throw that in there. You, you brought that one back. <laughs> I did. <laughs> that's a good one. Right after I wrote an article about why we shouldn't eat a lot of salt. Well, you know, I know, yes, that's, that's, a, different, that's a different conversation. This is just an analogy, just an analogy. So I want to finish it up with, with one last question, with, with everything you were just saying. So going back to that a time trial as a road racer and a, what was he? Mountain biker. Mountain biker walk into a bar. So they, they've all built this engine. The mountain biker is not walking out of the bar. He's the one that's getting drunk and collapsing on the floor, right? Well, that's a good point. <laughs> so what is time trialist sits at the back corner just looking yeah, he's the, all angry? Yeah, he's the he's the nerd, Poindexter, sitting by himself. Okay, yeah. So <laughs> the road this... racer's probably tr pr trying to get um, phone numbers of, of uh, <laughs> ladies. This Anyways. tangent has not been as good as our earlier tangents in this episode, but... So the question I have for you is, they've, they've built the engine. What is the specific work you would do with each of them? Or is it even more specific than that where you go, well, who's the particular athlete? It, is, it would be based on who the athlete is. But for me, it would be really event, event demand-based. The specificity would be event demand-based. So depending on what we were going to be facing would define the specificity that I would prescribe. And give us a sense of the factors there. Say it's a say you've done the sixty percent of the work building the aerobic engine with uh, a mountain biker, and then the target is the world championships. Are you looking at? I, I assume you're looking at the profile of the course, the yep, the exactly. altitude that the course sits at, the predominant weather conditions for that type of, or that time of year, um, the steepness of the climbs, the decisive, if you can even uh, uh, 
get a sense for the decisive points on the course and how that person can take take advantage of those. Everything is being looked at. Yep, correct. That's exactly how you do it. Mountain bike worlds, uh, uh, demands in Linzer Hyde are different from the demands in Alpstad. Uh, same, same competition, same event, same outcome, uh, but the demands of that event are just different. So you train the, the you train the specificity towards those event demands. Yeah. So that's like what you were talking about before. You so you you talked about the Beijing Hill. You find a similar hill and you do your work on that. That sort of yep. thing. If you can, yep. If you can, heat. You got to do it in heat. You got to you you got to acclimate to heat. Uh, altitude. You have to acclimate to altitude. Uh, and use. And then really. Go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say. Uh, I think big picture too, you have to look at things like uh, your competitors and, and what can they do and what they can't do and where can you create a separation and, and train for that as well. Right. Um, and you said in the, the example you gave with Kristen Armstrong that you set aside 12 weeks to build in most of that specificity when it came to working on the, the hill and the different yep. intervals. So yeah, if you have the luxury. Yeah, and that was primarily because that hill was a is it was a single effort LT, right? You're going to climb as hard as you can, as fast as you can. Uh, it's going to be one go, and you're done. Right. Then you're going down. Then you're going downhill at, at 60 miles an hour, and you're fully recovered in 35 seconds. So, because it was a, a threshold type effort, then we spent more time. We spent more time on that because threshold's harder to build. Something like if I go to Kate's Linzer Hyde win, for the most part, all year long, just being really consistent with training, being really consistent with the chronic training load that was present, um, always managing the acute training load and, and the rest. And then right before Linzer Hyde, uh, we, I think we had two weeks and we really just did a bunch of VO2 work. Not a bunch. I shouldn't say a bunch because that'll give the wrong uh, visual of it. But we, we had a focus on, on the VO2 work or the event demands for that race. So as a, a listener of Fast Talk, Jim, you hopefully are familiar with our one-minute take-home messages that we like to close the episode with. I'm going to put the pressure on you. We're going to have you start and sort of give us the most important message that you'd like people to take with them from this episode. And you've got 60 seconds. Physiology isn't as precise as, we, as physiologists or scientists like to make it in real world application of bicycle racing. Um, I think it's important that, that you have a good grasp and understanding of physiology and physio physiological science. But I think when you're, when you're riding training, you have to think uh, in your prescribing training, you have to think a lot about a lot of different factors. It has to be fun. Uh, it has to be enjoyable. Cycling's enjoyable. Um, it has to elicit a, a response. It has to create some sort of adaptation. So physiologically, you have to understand what you're trying to get out of that workout. And then I think you have to think about the psychological side of it and what you're trying to do uh, with your athlete psychologically as well. Uh, I think when you can put all three of those things together and you can start thinking about your training and your workouts and your exercise or training prescription uh, like that, then I think uh, you're well onto your, on your way to being a successful coach. Trevor, what do you think? So I actually came into this episode with what I thought was going to be my one minute, which was really getting into the complexity of this engine versus specificity. 
but I was so interested in these tangents we went down in that, you know, this this further side of experience versus what the this just what the science says. Uh and I'm not sure I can explain this in one minute, but what I like is just this overall concept of building a a toolbox. Part of that's building this engine, but there's also building the mental side, building the confidence. It's building all the pieces that you can then take to the event to put together a, a, a good event. And what I am hearing from you, Jim, that I really liked is looking for the coach perspective, you need to get to know the athlete and then figure out what tools they need. What's and, and you know, obviously start with build that big engine, but then figure out what tools they need. And almost what I'm hearing is getting caught up in details like specifics of intervals, things like that, just get you off track. It, it's much more about staying big, big picture, building the best athlete you can, and and taking them to the race confident and strong and ready to give it their all. Chris? Well, you know, I think taking both of your points and rolling it into one, if you think of this in terms of ROI, getting the most out of your investment in your training and the time you're going to spend training, which for, you know, for most of our listeners, I would say that that is the equation that runs through their mind all the time. How do I get the most out of what I'm doing when I've got to balance life and professional work and, and family and, and these types of things? And, and what I'm hearing today is something that we've addressed in several ways in previous episodes, but never essentially head on, which is you build the most or you improve your capabilities most effectively by working the engine as a whole through balanced training, through psychological, the buildup of psychological resilience and confidence and all of these different components um, through a balanced approach rather than skewing it to one side, high intensity or the other, too much low intensity. And therefore that essentially equates to the highest ROI, if that makes sense. I think I did a fairly sloppy job of explaining that, but, you know, if you want the most bang for your buck, the engine is where it's at. You throw in that little bit of, okay, my target race this year does have a eight-minute climb that averages 10%, and that's pretty unique, so I'm going to work on that when I can leading up to the race. And that's the amount of specificity that works the internal systems to deal with that component of the race. But the rest of the year is mostly about just making, making you the best athlete you can be. That was a long-winded way of saying, build the engine. <laughs> <laughs> Such a complex but really interesting subject. Yeah. Well, thank you, Jim Miller, for your time today. It was great to finally get you on the program. We want to have you back to get more of your great insights. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me. As uh, as you mentioned, I listen to your show all the time, and 
I think it was as much of an honor for me to be on your show as, as you think it was for me to come on to your show. Yeah, great. Thank you. Well, appreciate that. I'll still say that the honor is mostly ours, but, but appreciate you to say <laughs> that. And I hope we can get you on the show again soon. That was another episode of Fast Talk. As always, we love your feedback, so email us at fasttalk at fastlabs.com or record a voice memo on your phone and send it our way. Subscribe to Fast Talk wherever you prefer to find your favorite podcast. Be sure to leave us a rating and a review. The thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk are those of the individual. For Jim Miller, Kiel Reinen, Tim Cusick, Inigo San Milan, and Trevor Connor, I'm Chris Case. Thanks for listening.